Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport, and I'm both the host of this show as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about the art of talking with kids. If you've got kids, you know that talking to them is important and that sometimes it's more art than science. We will be talking today with Rebecca Rowland. She is a speech pathologist, writer, and a Harvard lecturer. Her book, The Art of Talking with Children, shows you how to enrich your interactions with the kids in your life and build the skills they need to thrive. Welcome, Rebecca, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having me. What led you to write a book about the art of talking with kids? Well, I'm the mom of two kids myself, as well as a speech pathologist. And what I realized when raising my own children is that we actually don't spend a lot of time really focused on the everyday interactions that we have with our own kids. And I knew a lot about the power of conversation to build children's skills in so many areas. But I felt that even myself being a professional, I wasn't spending much time or attention actually thinking about our interactions. So I really was motivated to understand that as a journey and to help other parents and caregivers do so as well. You know, it makes sense. It does feel like we talk to our children all the time. (laughs) Please make up your bed. Dinner is ready. I'm telling (laughs) you guys, stop hitting your brother. You know, take your finger out of your nose. There is a lot of, it's constant. I mean, it feels like at the end of the day, it's like, oh, just, I don't want to hear anybody talk. And yet I realize that not all talk is the same. You have a term that you use called rich talk. First, what is it? And then why is that important? Yeah, so I developed this term, rich talk, to think about exactly what you're saying of how do we get beyond these more logistical conversations? So things like make your bed and get your soccer cleats and things like that Mm -hmm. to things that are more meaningful to actually conversations where we feel we're connecting with our kids, our kids are connecting with us. And we actually are changing in the process in some way. Maybe we're resolving a conflict or maybe we're thinking of a new insight, or our kids are, or maybe we're trying to understand how the other person feels. So things that are actually kind of at a higher level and deeper than the conversations we may have on autopilot. Mm -hmm. The mundane conversations that are necessary just to keep the family moving, literally and figuratively. So yeah, but the opportunities exist for us to take it deeper. Okay. So you talk about in the book, the art of talking with children about different types of conversations. What are some of the different, which I assume we mean conversations of rich talk. So what are some of the different types of conversations we should be having with our kids? If you can just list the types, then we'll go into detail about the different types. Yeah. So in terms of different types of conversations, there's so many areas that we could help kids with, but I've really zeroed it in on a few key areas to really support children. So one of them would be, how do we help children learn more deeply in terms of their conversations we have with them every day, not just in school, but even when we're at home? How do we actually help them be more curious and think more deeply? Similarly, how do we help them become more empathetic? We know that empathy isn't something that kids are always born with. We actually have to develop it. So how do we help them in their conversations? Similarly, how do we build their social skills? How do we help them resolve conflicts? How do we help them become more creative and playful? And also, how do we help them 
embrace diversity and actually celebrate differences in the people around them. So not just differences in maybe skin or hair color, but differences in thinking and temperament and personality and so on. And all of these conversations are things we can have with them, not in sort of one big chunk, but really woven throughout the day in all these kind of quieter moments of the day. Exactly. I mean, there's so many opportunities if we're looking for them throughout the day to have these conversations. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you, are you enjoying today's podcast? Obviously, I hope the answer to that is yes. But if you are, it would really help us out if you would tell a friend about this podcast, why you like it, and encourage them to listen as well. It would help us improve our mission. Our mission is to strengthen families. And you're telling others about this podcast is a step in that direction. So please let your friends and family know about the creatingafamily.org podcast. All right, now let's dig deeper into some of the rich talk conversations, deep talk, whatever, that we should be having or it would help our kids if we were having with them. You talked about the first one you mentioned was learning. Can you explain what you mean and then give us some examples? Sure, yeah. So I think all of us want our children to learn, obviously. And a lot of times we may find ourselves trying to teach them and kind of lecturing at them. So they ask us a question and maybe we say, Oh, well, let me tell you all about that. And we have a whole speech prepared or we try to prepare a speech or say we don't know something and it can maybe be stressful. So a child says, say, how many stars are there in the universe? And we think, oh, I don't really know that. Or let me Google that. And we kind of brush off those conversations because we don't know the answer. And maybe it's a little uncomfortable to feel like, oh, well, my child is looking to me to teach them and I actually don't have all the answers. I actually flip that around. And I think that actually not knowing the answer, especially to some of these big questions that kids are asking, is really an opportunity for us to go alongside them as part of a learning journey. So we might actually say, kind of verbalize our thinking and talk aloud, say, oh, I think there's probably at least a million stars, but I'm not really sure. Let's see how we might find that out together. So here we're thinking less about being kind of the oracle or the lecturer and more about actually joining with our child in a kind of partnership and really helping their curiosity along. So we don't have to know the answer. I think sometimes we do get hung up on that. Less so now, honestly, because we all have phones. We all have a computer in our pocket. Yeah, we can always Google it. (laughs) Yeah. What you're saying, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. The idea is to do it along with our kids and to admit, I actually think that's great to be able to say, I don't know how many stars there are. I know there are a lot, but I don't know how many. Let's Google it. Yeah. And there's so many opportunities, both when your kids are asking questions, but I would imagine there's lots of opportunities just throughout the day to help them dig deeper and learn and think about things in a different way, even when they're not asking questions. Can you give us some examples of that? Yes, exactly. So even when they're, say, looking at something really simple and concrete, and especially for young kids, they may be really focused on something that doesn't seem totally fascinating to you. So maybe oh, there's, oh yeah. let us count the ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, that definitely happens. So uh, maybe they're staring at, you know, some ants walking along in a line. I've done a lot of that with my daughter when she was little. You know, they're carrying leaves. That is not a fair example. That one's actually interesting. Yeah, that is actually (laughs) interesting. I do. I do find that interesting sometimes. Or maybe they're watching something very basic. They're watching 
a pipe with water dripping out of it, you know, and they're sort of staring at this pipe and occasionally water will drip out and that kind of thing. And you think like, why are they, why are they doing this? (laughs) Why is this interesting to them? And I actually propose this idea called curious waiting, where I actually think we can just stay silent and really watch them and kind of become curious about what they might be thinking. So not just to say, oh yeah, they're staring at a pipe, but what is it about that that's actually interesting to them? What is it that's drawing their attention? And, you know, is it, oh, how often do these drops come? Or what's making the water come? Or, you know, is it rain or something else that's coming out of the pipe? That kind of thing. And so then we can really imagine and kind of empathize with the child, you know, what is actually going on in their mind? And then ask them to kind of explain, just to say, oh, tell me more. Or what about that is interesting to you? And in these moments, we actually get to know a lot more about our children, what they're thinking, what's engaging to them, and so on, than if we just said, oh, yeah, it's a pipe, let's move along. So taking that time, I think, is really important, especially when you're not sure what a child is really thinking. Mm-hmm. And engaging and asking them. Exactly. And, and really just also thinking aloud. So I think even those small moments, we have a chance to say, oh, well, you know, let's think, you could even think about gravity, you know, what's making the water fall downwards? What's making, uh, you know, what's stopping it? There's so many different things you can talk about. And really just taking those simple moments to say, well, we don't have to have great conversations based on large topics or big abstract questions. We can actually have great conversations focused on something as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Mundane, is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Another conversation you recommend that we as parents, or not just only parents, but adults in children's lives have with our kids is empathetic conversations, conversations, I would assume, to elicit empathy in our kids. Yes, definitely. And so I really think that there's kind of a common misconception a lot of us have is that children are either kind of empathetic or they're not empathetic. So we often say, oh, this child is, you know, so sweet to other kids, or this child doesn't understand other kids. And we tend to label kids like that. And I think in doing that, we often miss that empathy is really a process. So it's always in development. And it's always something that we can develop further in children. And actually, in doing that, we can develop our own empathy skills. So actually, it's really a process of even as adults, we can grow in our empathy. And it doesn't have to be, you know, these abstract lessons. So oftentimes, if we're trying to teach children, say, in the abstract about kindness or caring for other people, children are tuning us out. So I think what's really important is to focus on actual situations or times when a child is wondering something or as a question or even makes an unkind comment about someone and taking that opportunity to say, well, let's, you know, imagine what that person might be facing. So really even trying to move into that other person's perspective, that can be a really helpful way of really building empathy in the moment rather than feeling like we're going to, you know, abstractly talk about it, which often goes over many kids' heads. Yeah, I think that there's so many opportunities when you're reading to your children. And that's such an opportunity to go off the script and to talk about kindness of one of the characters? Or what would that character be feeling when that happened? And TV shows as well. 
what do you think about Coco Melon doing that or whatever, <laughs> you know? Of course, that would require oftentimes when our kids are watching TV, honestly, we're using it as a babysitter. And as long as it's done in moderation, yes. it's probably an effective one. So TV might not be the best example, but certainly with, with children's books or, you know, now they've got storytelling podcasts, things that you're engaging with your child, utilizing that. And books are such a good one. <laughs> exactly. One thing to keep in mind is that it's actually great to interrupt when you're reading a story. So sometimes we think, oh, let's just read the story and just get through the story. But actually, there's a lot of research showing that kind of when we do let kids interrupt or we do interrupt, mm -hmm. not all the time, but, you know, sometimes ourselves and ask those questions, we really can support a lot of these learnings because it's right in the moment, right? When kids are really thinking about it. That's such a good point. You do think sometimes you're, you know, I'm messing up, particularly if, you know, the books for younger children sometimes have a rhythm and a flow and you don't want to. And yet, honestly, there are books, every library's got tons of, particularly for younger kids, a little less so as our kids become independent readers, but really are focusing on empathy and feelings. And there's a Bernstein Bear book for everyone and everything <laughs> in every situation. So all of those are things that are happening anyway in our kids' lives. Exactly. And I do think to recognize that so many of these books, which are great, they really do bring in situations that kids have often faced in their own lives. So really to think about how do we support them sort of making those connections and saying, well, you know, has something like that ever happened to you? Or what would you feel like if something like that did happen to you? And a lot of this actually, it's doing a lot of things. So it's actually building the language that children need for school learning as well. So even though it's focused on empathy, we're actually doing that kind of hypothetical thinking where we say, well, what would a child feel like or what would you feel like if you were in his shoes? That's really actually helping them with their learning and their reading comprehension for later on. So it has always these kind of braided benefits. I'm glad you raised that because I don't know that that's really the the thrust of why we should be having our rich conversations. But the truth is there's fascinating research, and you would actually be the one I could ask about it, but I've read some fascinating research on the number of words that are spoken to a child being directly correlated to that child's success in school. Uh, well, the number of words, I think that what I was reading was was prior to the child entering kindergarten. Have you also read some of that research? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, there's a ton of really interesting research on showing that especially how many words a child hears by mm -hmm. age three, that has a ton of links to their later vocabulary, to how prepared they are for kindergarten, and then for their success in later years. So it's influenced by a lot of things, like including the parents' income and level of education. And there's a lot of factors. So people mm -hmm. are kind of arguing about, well, what's the reason for that? But we do know that for sure that these number of words and even the types of words that kids are hearing is really important for their later success. So definitely thinking about that is sort of yet another benefit. Right. And we have to acknowledge the privilege of parents who have the option of not working two jobs, who are exactly. around their kids more often and are not at the time, you know, when they are around their kids, terribly distracted by just the basics of life. So that gets into some of the other factors that's not simply words that are being thrown at a child. All of those things play in. Exactly. 
In addition to the free resources on our site, this podcast, and the other things we do at Creating a Family, we also have a training and support group curriculum. Obviously, it's for foster, adoptive, and kinship families, since those are the people we serve. But this curriculum is designed for both online and in-person trainings or support groups. It is easy to use. It is video-based. Very little preparation is required. But most importantly, it's also interactive. There is lots of discussion and communication amongst the participants. You can get more information at, there's two ways to get information. One, the website, parentsupportgroups.org. And the second way is going to our website, creatingafamily.org, hovering over the word training in the horizontal menu and clicking on curriculum. All right, let's get back to the list of types of conversations that you think are important. You mentioned social skills. It seems to me that would be tied to empathy, but perhaps not. So how can we use conversation language to improve our children's social skills? Yeah, so I think part of it really involves starting to see ourselves as sort of mentors and coaches for children in terms of some of the social situations that they're facing. So oftentimes we think of it almost as an either or situation. So either we're, say, in the midst of children's conflicts with others and we're trying to help them work it out right in there. Or we say, oh, well, you're, you know, developing skills yourself. You should work it out and just leaving it. So I think there's really a third option where we do allow them independence. We do allow them a chance to work things out with friends or with classmates. But we also allow us ourselves and them to step back and have some reflective time after the fact and talk with them about things like, well, how do we know that a friendship is good for us? How do we know if a friendship is starting to become negative or having um, negative implications for some of the other classmates? And we often don't think about kind of children's social skills as also in development sort of over time in the same way as empathy. So some children may say, immediately learn to make new friends. But other kids may have really great language skills. At the same time, they really have trouble entering friend groups. And they just don't know, you know, what do I say to make new friends? Or what do I say to these new kids on the bus? You know, how do I get to know them? So actually doing some kind of role playing and talking through with them, some of these challenges can make it a lot easier for kids to feel like, okay, now I can navigate some of these things myself. How are you aware when our children are very young, much of their social, well, not even that because they're in daycare, so we may not see their social interactions. How do we find out about the social interactions our kids have had to be able to better engage in conversation with them? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of ways. So one way that I found really useful is just to simply observe them in other situations. So if they're, say, on the playground with kids they don't know, or if they're, if you bring them to some kind of event or to a party, you know, to watch them, to watch a little bit, how are they interacting with older and younger kids? Or how are they making their way into new situations? Or what happens if they get into an argument on the playground? And really paying attention and saying, okay, at least not all the time, 100% of the time, but noticing, say there's a conflict over a toy. How is my child responding to this other child? What kind of strategies are they using? Where do they get stuck? That sort of thing. And another option really is just to notice what they're talking about on a daily basis. So if they come home and every day they say, you know, something kind of vague, like, 
oh, this friend or this child is mean. You know, you think like, what does that really mean? Actually taking the time to unpack that a little bit with them, you know, not to say, what do you mean by that? But, you know, to think, okay, so what is it to be mean? What happened today? Is this happening all the time? How do you act when that person says that? And getting a sense from them of how they're seeing the situation, I think can be a really useful way in because it's it's true. We can't be there. We're not there during all of these interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I guess talking with your child's teacher. Exactly. That would be, that's another one I was just about to mention. So talking okay. <laughs> to teachers and others who know your child. So really taking that time, especially if there are things like conferences, sometimes we focus more on academic skills, but realizing that those social elements are equally important. So if it doesn't come up, just to really not assume, okay, that means everything's perfect, but let's just actually talk about, you know, what are some of my child's social strengths, social challenges, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then looking for opportunities. Exactly. And coming back to books, looking for books that <laughs> will address that and then going off script. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It all ties back in. All right. You also, in the book, The Art of Talking with Children, you talk about conversations for confidence and independence. Those seem like hard concepts to teach our children, but talk about why that's important and then some examples. Yeah. So really, I would say both of these are just so critical in terms of helping our children develop and thrive as they get older and older and as they're expected to do more and more Mm -hmm. and rely on us less. So really, independence and confidence look different at every age and stage, but we can always help our children and kind of nudge them in the direction of feeling more as if they can do things and as if they can actually recognize and celebrate the sense of pride and sense of accomplishment when they do accomplish what they set out to. So I think about confidence really as kind of a reaction. So we think about it kind of as an I can reaction. It's not one specific action. It's not one specific scenario, but it's a general attitude of approaching things to say, oh, I think I can try that, or I think I can get partway there. And when a child maybe doesn't get all the way there, of saying, okay, I think I can try that again. And contrast that to a child, say, who's, you know, they try something once and, you know, I'm never going to be good at this or I give up or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to try this anymore. It's too hard. It's too hard. Or I'm just, I'm a failure, that kind of thing. So really noticing that kind of self-talk, that kind of sense of, I'm not going to try again and helping kids break things down and start to feel like, okay, well, this part's manageable. So not necessarily, I'm going to just re-attack that same problem in the same way and hope for it to work this time. But to say, okay, well, let's actually step back a minute. And at least as long as the emotion maybe is is down a little bit or the heightened Mm -hmm. emotion goes down, to take a moment of reflection and to say, okay, well, this is a really big task, but what part of it could we break down? What piece of it could we try to manage as a first start? And to help kids do that, and even sometimes visually, I found it to be helpful to help kids actually make a chart or visualize their progress on a sheet of paper. So they're seeing, okay, well, I didn't get the whole thing done. You know, I didn't run five miles, say, but, you know, I ran for two minutes and that was much longer than I was able to run two weeks ago. And that kind of thing to really help them see their progress and also to kind of give them a sense of optimism about the future. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that when a child says, depending on what it is, of course, but it's too hard, acknowledging, yes, it is hard, but you do hard things. 
You, exactly. you know, and, and giving them an example of something in their life. Well, you did this and it was hard. You know, exactly. so that, yeah. And I think I'm definitely validating that, oh, it does feel hard for a child. So I think sometimes mm-hmm. we get into this knee-jerk reaction of, oh, it's not that hard or, oh, you know, it'll be pretty easy. When it, for a child, it feels really hard. So mm-hmm. acknowledging kind of that the both things are true kind of thing, that it can be really hard and I think you can probably do it or let's see how far you can get if you try it. Mm-hmm. May take a while. Last time you had it's a hard thing. It took you a while, but you succeeded. And that's how we succeed with hard things. How does that tie into independence? And what type of conversations can we have that would lead to our child's independence? Yeah, so independence, I think, involves almost a cycle of action and reflection. So we can't really help children become independent if we're not actually willing a little bit, at least, to kind of let go of the reins sometimes Mm -hmm. and to Mm say, oh, we're going to let our child do things that might feel a little bit out of their comfort zone or even a little bit out of our comfort zone. Amen. And fail. Let our children (laughs) screw up, make a mistake, or maybe it's not screw up, but just make a mistake and fail. Exactly. And I think that that can be so hard, especially with that urge, obviously, to protect our kids, you know, that we think, oh, well, I wouldn't do that, or I wouldn't try that, or, you know, I'm not sure that that's the right thing. And sometimes, obviously, that's warranted. But at other times, we can think, well, what really could happen? What's the worst that could happen? And if it's simply that the child could fail and be upset, really, I think that's something where we might need to say, okay, well, let's let the child do it. Let's let the child fail and then maybe come back from the failure. And the goal is to really help the child come back from the failure with a sense of, resilience and a feeling that, okay, well, it didn't work this time. What can I strategize for the next time? Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes helping them with that, talking through the strategies can be really helpful. So the why of why it didn't work, this can help kids feel like, okay, well, I can still be independent. I can try this in a different way rather than the default being, oh, it didn't work. So now I'm going to go back and not do it. Or I'm going to let you do it for me instead. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can be an initial reaction that kids have. Of, oh, it was too hard. So can you just do it for me? <laughs> or even for homework, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know that. So can you just answer that for me? And helping them kind of push off that urge to say, just do it for me and say, well, I think you can do it. And trying to scaffold or help them with that process through some of these verbal strategies. And the verbal strategies are helping them think through the steps that are needed and practice that they may need before they can achieve. Is that what you mean by the? Yes. Yes. So definitely talking through kind of the why. Let's analyze why it didn't work. So let's actually look at the failure, not in sort of a judgmental, critical way, but in a really objective way, as objective as possible to say, well, let's just take a look at what didn't work. And sometimes I will say that it's really helpful to start with something that we're failing at, rather than putting it first, this process on a child, because sometimes it feels like, oh, this is too emotional, or this feels like too fresh for me that like, I failed at this, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to analyze it. So sometimes if there is something say that we tried that didn't quite work, taking those in the moment time to say, oh, that's surprising, I didn't get this thing to work the way I wanted to. My computer was still broken after I tried X and Y thing. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about what didn't work about it. What could I try next? And then when you repeat that process with a child, you can start with something that, say, doesn't feel as emotional to them. So something maybe more playful that they tried that didn't work. And then when it becomes kind of a habit or a conversation that you might have 
multiple times between the two of you, then it can feel easier to do this in times when there's sort of a more challenging or more emotional thing that didn't work for them. Mm -hmm. I say this with empathy because I am absolutely guilty of this. Sometimes with the independence, it is just easier, faster if we do it. You know? Yes, yes, easier, oh, for sure. <laughs> faster, and definitely less messy. And so it's a challenge. We have to fight that, particularly if we're, and there are times where you don't fight it. You're in a hurry, yes, exactly. you need to get out the door. Okay, I'm going to put your shoes on and tie them. But recognizing that we need to create opportunities for our kids. And if we find we're always in a hurry, then taking a look at our lives and saying, okay, wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> this child's never going to learn to tie their shoes unless we add 15 minutes to, oh, let's not say 15. Let's say <laughs> five extra five minutes. minutes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know what I was pushing. No, thinking, no, for sure. Hopefully. Who's got 15 extra minutes yeah, yeah. in the morning routine? No one. Yes. So yeah, forget that. Let's say five minutes that we're going to be working on it. Yeah. I am guilty of that. It certainly oh, for sure. when my children were younger. If you are enjoying this podcast, you might also enjoy some of the free courses that we offer in our online learning center. These courses are brought to you by the Jockey Bing Family Foundation, meaning that it's their support that allows us to bring it to you for no charge. Yep, that's right. Free. We have a library of courses there that are free. There are 12 courses, and they are directly relevant for the act of parenting. A lot of them are really focused on parenting itself. So check it out at bit.ly slash JBF support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash JBF support. All right, continuing down the rich talk, rich conversations that we can have with our kids. Another one in the book is conversations for building relationships. Give us some examples. Yeah. So sometimes I've seen kids, for instance, feel like, well, I had this argument with a friend of mine and now we're not going to be friends anymore, you know, or say, I don't like this friend because my other friend said they were mean. And so really this logic of Children often having trouble not only making friends, but actually managing their relationships and figuring out, well, how do I come back from an argument? Or how do I actually move past a misunderstanding in a way that will help strengthen the relationship rather than tear us apart? And I see this a lot in terms of conflicts. So a lot of times if we actually explore conflicts from a more empathetic angle, it can ironically teach us a lot about the other person and about ourselves. So say, you know, one child wants this part of the cake and the other child wants that part of the cake. This is a very basic example, obviously. But talking through, you know, well, what is it about that part of the cake that you want so much? Icing. Icing is the icing. Answer. It's the icing. Yeah, yeah it, it is, is the, the icing. Yeah. I can answer that question for you. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, can we find a way that both of us can have a piece of the icing? Okay, well, you want the blue kind because blue is your favorite color. Okay, well, what about her? Does she care about blue? Maybe she doesn't. Okay, so let's do that kind of thing. So we actually start to work through, well, who cares about what? How can we make that each person get kind of their biggest priority, even if they don't get everything that they want? And then actually learning. Well, okay, so we now know that this person is like really into only the icing, but they actually don't care about cake at all, or they don't care about the letters. And that's just a basic example. But taking the time not just to say, well, here, you have this part, you have that part, and you know, let's just be done. 
but actually being a little calm and objective and trying to help kids work out and talk through what does this person want? How can I help them get what they want and not give up what I want? And how can we actually learn about each other in the process? We actually see conflict as a chance to do that learning, even if it is uncomfortable at times or feels stressful at times. We can really help children work through those conflicts to build relationships rather than to say, okay, now we're just sitting here in silence and we're upset at each other. It sounds to me like you're teaching the art of compromise. Exactly. Yes. And I think of actually learning to use compromise as a window into the other person. So say, oh, now I understand more about this person rather than I'm just more angry at them. And over time, obviously, you can see how that would have benefits. My daughter wants to find compromise. My eldest daughter, who struggled with compromise at that age, she was... Uh, her brother said, what does mom mean when she says we have to compromise? And I had set them down and they said, you need to sit here and then figure out a compromise. And he said, what does mom mean? Which I think he probably knew. But she said, it means we talk and we talk and neither one of us gets our way. <laughs> I thought, well. Yeah, that could happen too. That's definitely a possible outcome. <laughs> well, yep. That's pretty much what compromise is. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to sit there until you figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that the art of compromise is, obviously, since I did it a lot with my kids, I think it is so important. I think sometimes parents get into this thing where they, if they compromise with, their, let's say we were talking with a three-year-old, no, I'm not going to put on my shirt. Parents feel like if they go into negotiation that they're giving in, they're allowing this child to have control and things that they shouldn't have control on. And I'll grant you that I agree that sometimes that is something that we have to be aware of. But it seems to me that that, that compromising even using such a mundane example, is a way of teaching the concept that, all right, how can you get part of what you want? You know, you don't want to put on your shirt right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you want to go brush your teeth first and then come back and put your shirt on? That would be a compromise. And then I, I also believe in formalizing the compromise with the shaking of a hand or something along those yes. lines mm-hmm. to uh, help them remember that they actually did compromise. What are your thoughts on that? The parents feeling mm-hmm. like they're just encouraging Poor behavior. Yes. No, I definitely agree that there's time and a place for saying, okay, it needs to happen this way. And for even maybe giving a reason for why it needs to happen that way. This is definitely not, say, an argument for permissive parenting or saying, oh, whatever, you know, let's just, if you don't want to do it, okay, that's fine. You know, what I am saying, and I definitely agree with you, is that really to think through, well, what part matters and what part doesn't matter. And so, you know, if it's like, it doesn't really matter if my child puts their shirt on first or brushes their teeth first, Mm -hmm. it's really just sort of both of them need to happen to actually let your child know that to say, well, both of these things need to occur to get out the door, Mm -hmm. but you know, you can choose the order. Mm -hmm. And actually so many kids just feel they have such a lack of agency and choice that They Mm -hmm. are kind of putting up these walls about things that really don't matter, at least don't matter to us. (laughs) Well, and and, and there are certain developmental stages. Exactly. Three-year-olds, late two-year-olds are just doing it to learn the power of the word no. Exactly. And that's okay. But it seems to me teaching compromise gives them using that as the, okay, yeah, you're right. The order doesn't matter here. You get to choose. But I get to say that both teeth and shirt have to be on. Exactly. Yeah. And even to give a reason, you know, it's, it's cold outside. So yes, to leave the house and go to school, we're going to have to have a coat. But you know, which of these coats you wear, you can choose what's your favorite today? Mm-hmm. Which one do you prefer? Even sometimes changing the question in some way. So the child is about coat or not coat. 
And maybe you can make the conversation more about, well, which of the codes can often give that sort of sense of choice and agency without Mm -hmm. making the argument where we're just both digging in our heels. And I think that sometimes it is that, that when a child puts up this no, it can be very triggering, I think. And we just say, well, no, it has to be that way. And so we kind of get into this back and forth when really it doesn't have to be that way. And it's more that the emotions are kind of heightened on both sides. On both sides. And that is because sometimes you're, this is not the first no you face (laughs) this morning when you're trying to get out the door. And sometimes you're just, okay, no, but, (laughs) and that's okay too. But what you're saying is let's use these as opportunities to deepen our kids' ability to build relationships, to be able to understand how life works and using conversation to move us there. Exactly. Yes. And I think even with the coat example saying, well, we're going to carry your coat, but as soon as you get outside and you see how cold it is, you're likely to want to wear the coat, that type of thing. So to say sort of like, what is non-negotiable for us? And to recognize that maybe not everything has to be non-negotiable, I think. Yeah, exactly. And quite frankly, with the coat example, I was a big believer in I might stick it in the car, but if they wanted to freeze, I really didn't care. Exactly. That's the thing is I think, it was, yeah, kids yeah. are going to figure that out themselves yeah, pretty just quickly. Just sit yeah. near them and after, yes. they, uh, after they've been outside for a while, they will put it on. Yes. That comes into the old pick your battles. Yes. And your cold is not my battle. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> your discomfort, I should say, is right. not my battle. All right. Another conversation, which I think we're all aware now is more and more important, is a conversation, you call it for openness. And I think that you define openness fairly broadly. So let's talk about uh, conversations for openness. Yes, definitely. So I really think that as kids are developing, it's so important that we actually support them in taking kind of a fundamental attitude of it's actually interesting and helpful and good that I meet and interact with people who are different from me in whatever way. Because I think sometimes kids gravitate towards what's familiar. And that may be simply developmental stages. That may be the kinds of conversations they have. But it can be so easy at young ages for kids to start making assumptions about people that they don't know. To say, oh, this group of people is like this. Or this group of people does things this way. And to really start to help kids realize that, well, um, lots of people do things different ways, but actually understanding and embracing all of these range of ways of being, of looking, even of thinking actually enriches our lives and enriches your life too, Mm -hmm. because they're going to encounter differences in so many different areas. And that's partly why I define openness so broadly, because, you know, there's differences in the way we think, the way we look our religion, our beliefs, so many different areas. And I think it all starts with just cultivating this attitude of actually difference is good and difference enriches our lives before we start on any of these specific conversations. And I don't know that you specifically mentioned this, but it's easy for kids at a very young age to pick up on one difference would grant superiority to one group. That group is not as good as this group. And that speaks for surrounding our kids with a lot of diversity. Exactly. So that they don't see that. And one way, although certainly not the only way, nor even the most important way, is I come back to children's books, making certain that the main character in some of our kids' books are a different religion, are a different race, or different ability, and not just the supporting character, and that the hero 
is a kid in a wheelchair. We see that the so oftentimes it's the sidekick, not the main character. And being aware, and once you become aware of it, you look at the books that your child's checking out from the library mm-hmm. or the books that you have in your home library and you go, oh gosh. And that takes intentionality. For sure. Yeah. I'll throw out a creating a family created a guide to raising an anti-racist child. Now that's talking about racial differences, but we go into great depth in that guide. Things to specifically be looking for in your children's literature, but that's specific to race. You talk about this as helping our kids become global citizens. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I'm really thinking about those differences in international context. So the fact that our children, as they grow up in this very globalized world, are going to need to actually interact with people from all over the world who speak all different kinds of languages, who come from all different cultures, have different races, and so on. And to really help them navigate these things from a perspective of openness is just such a huge gift. Because as we're talking about, it's so easy especially in a world where they're often hearing the news and there's often sort of an us versus them mentality to really have them pick up on those signals and start to say, oh, well, I don't like these people or I'm not going to learn that language because you know I met this person from who speaks that language and I don't like them. So I don't like anybody who speaks that language. And so to kind of create all these categories and lumping people into categories. And in the book, I talk about how we obviously, all of us make categories of things. So this is a natural impulse in some ways to say, oh, I'm starting to understand the world. So I'm putting, you know, these are all tables. These are all, you know, whatever. But so when you apply that to people, that becomes really problematic, obviously, because you are starting to create these kind of assumptions or biases. And so especially if we are using books to really help kids think through, for example, oh, I read this character and in some ways they're very similar to me, which is, interesting and we can talk about, but in some ways they're really different from me. And maybe they celebrate a different holiday or maybe they, you know, have a different family structure and so on. And actually to not make the assumption that, oh, it's better if we're all just the same, or let's kind of just pretend that we're both exactly the same, but actually to say, well, there's, there's a lot to be found and a lot to be learned in understanding or exploring that difference. Let's learn more about that holiday. Maybe can we find somebody who celebrates it and talk to them about how do they celebrate it and what's like and unlike our holidays. So to actually recognize and acknowledge that there are these differences between us, but that there's sort of an underlying humanity as well. So helping them always see, well, here's the ties, but we can also celebrate the differences and learn from people who may act or look or believe things differently than us. Mm -hmm. And how would you use conversation with older kids as it comes up in context of the news? Yeah, so I think especially to help starting with what their assumptions are, what they've heard. So a lot of times we may go in and kind of have a pre-planned thing or things we want to communicate, but we may actually be missing what the child's assumptions actually are or what they have heard and what sense they're making of it. Oftentimes we see that kids who are watching the news may misunderstand aspects of it or may make assumptions that Mm -hmm. might not entirely be true. So before we go in and say, well, let me explain to you what's happening or let me tell you, you know, the people in the conflict, actually just ask them basic questions about what they know, what they've heard and kind of what their questions or wonderings are. Sometimes they might be worried about something you've never even thought about. 
So to really start with them and kind of a child-centered conversation can be much more helpful in a lot of times than just thinking of an abstract lecture. Do you recommend starting with questions when you have a child-centered conversation? Yes. I mean, I think it all depends on if the child is already coming to you with something. So maybe they're saying, oh, I read this thing in the news and I'm worried about it. To really kind of get more specific with them. So before you can really help them or just say, let me just tell you, oh, that's not a big deal. Let's not worry about it. Actually, we'll ask them, you know, what is it that you're worried about? What do you think could happen? That type of thing is really helpful just as a window into their understanding and then into kind of what type of conversation would be most useful. So I oftentimes think of it as checking their knowledge, their boundaries of knowledge and ignorance or even misconceptions before we try to start a conversation. So it doesn't always have to start with questions, but I do think it's a really helpful way to get a sense of their thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the last of the rich conversations that I want to talk about is conversations to promote joy and creativity. It seemed like a good one to end on. (laughs) So, I mean, we all want our kids to be happy. We want our kids to be creative. We want them to live to their full potential. What are some types of conversations? How can words help with that, I guess? Yeah, so I think a lot about not just play and play alongside children, but also playful thinking. So this really means that you can obviously do things that are fun with language with kids. So things like puns and riddles and jokes and lots of kids really enjoy that. And if you don't even, you know, you're not sure of some, you can obviously get books of these and we can talk about them. So that's one way, even if you're saying, well, I don't, you know, I don't know any riddles, (laughs) you know, it's very easy to even take a book and trade. So you read one, the child reads one, that type of thing can be just a really fun activity, but also I think about playful thinking. So this really means an attitude of questioning and almost what if. So say you're just outside playing with, you know, a a truck in the sand. So to think through kind of, well, what if that truck weighed a thousand pounds? What would it do, you know, if it could go upside down? What would it do in outer space? What would happen if? So asking these kind of imaginative questions and helping children think through possibilities in a really playful way, can be a really helpful way to interact, but also to just spark their imagination and their creativity. Mm -hmm. The what if games. Exactly. And I also think to support children, even when they're having a conflict or they're upset about something, in trying to approach it in a more playful way. So it doesn't always mean that we're going to be playful or laughing about everything. But sometimes to say, well, can we break up this conflict? Or can we break up this situation? by actually looking at it more playfully. So what if I was a dinosaur? How long would it take me to put on my shoes? Or what if I was, you know, very, very small? How long would it take me to walk this, you know, amount of distance? Mm -hmm. So to help kids kind of play around with those things, especially in times when things feel kind of stuck, or when conversations feel kind of like we're butting heads with each other, it can be also a really helpful way to break up conflicts. Mm Mm-hmm. I will give an example that's relevant to our audience of foster adoptive and kin families. It's from my life. My eldest daughter came home from school very upset. I had dropped her off that day with one of her younger siblings, who is not the same race. And somebody had at class had said that her younger sibling could not be her sibling because they weren't the same race. And the eldest daughter was furious. Just, I mean, she told him that wasn't true or whatever, but she came home still absolutely furious, just fuming. 
And we had talked about why they might think that. We went through talking about families that don't look alike and how we draw attention. Went on and on. Finally, I, I just said, well, what would you want to do with that person? And she didn't come up. I said, boy, I, I think I might just tie him to a tree when it's raining outside. You know, and then she came up with something equally outlandish. And some of them were rather gruesome. Some were not. And so we ended up settling on her best one was I would stuff their mouth full of jalapenos and then I'd put duct tape over their mouth. <laughs> at this point, we were just laughing and laughing. And, uh, and I say, we have to stop there because that's the worst thing I could possibly have. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> she likes jalapenos and I don't. So that was for me the greatest form of torture. I don't know if that fits exactly because we didn't really solve the problem in the sense that she had said you know, that, that this wasn't true. And we talked about having me come and read things to the class and read books and stuff. But anyway, by taking a light approach in the end, it kind of got her unstuck because she was definitely stuck. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I think especially that that melding, meaning that you don't really have to be only serious or only playful, but that their mm -hmm. conversations can do both. And I think that's a really important example where, you know, you still are going to talk to the teacher and you still do validate mm -hmm. her concern and the fact that this was very upsetting. But then also in taking that more playful approach, you can say, well, but let's also kind of step back and sort of validate our own relationship in some ways by playing along together and kind of showing that I'm on your side and showing that we can mm -hmm. kind of take that moment of humor, even in this serious situation. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Rebecca Rowland, for being with us today to talk about the art of talking with kids. And fortuitously, that is also the name of her book, The Art of Talking with Children. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It was a great conversation. This show is supported by Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption, home studies, and post adoption support. And they also have a foster to adopt program for families in Southern California. You can find them online at vistadelmar.org slash adoption. 